Chapter Thirteen of The Blue Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Angelique G. Campbell, August two thousand eighteen. The Blue Star by Fletcher Pratt. Farewell and greeting. Back again to the place of masks through streets littered with the sour debris of festival among which languid sweepers toiled after what had happened lalette did not ask to say farewell to the elder piax or aunt zosanna there was a twitch at the corner of the doorman's mouth as he let them out she would not let gadou accompany her further than the market square for morning had brought back all the anxiety of the price still on her apprehension he remarked somewhat spitefully that he could understand how she would not wish to have her people see a zigranir bringing her home ladouis answered her knock he seemed truly happy to see her the widow was at the cook's shop lalette changed the mask of sunama for her worn clothes finishing just as the woman returned they ate talking but little and that much in light terms dame damagec sent the boy out and as his footsteps went down the stair did you find him she asked he is at sedet fix her mouth worked a little and with the calm eyes fixed upon her she could keep it back no more he has been unfaithful to me i do not understand in the witch families we cannot help ah then it is a knowledge gained through falsity and witchcraft not through the god of love and so will lead to no good end i am unhappy was all lalette could whisper not understanding what the woman was trying to say it is because you look on this man as personal to you love must share with all there was something passionately wrong with this lalette thought but rue and the afterlash of last night's wine and this morning's experience had left her too low to seek out the flaws she began to weep softly after a few moments the widow said let us reason if you owe him not less than all love so he owes as much to you and by destroying your joy he has failed his obligation do you still love him not as we must love all but to yourself as of the material world it seemed to lalette as though there was something big and dark and heavy in her breast where her heart ought to be and she had no clear thoughts at all any more I do not know ah i do not know he is all i have you have a mother child a mother who tried to sell me and still would if she could find me because she wishes to save you from distress she herself has felt that also is done in love i think then i'll have no love cried lalette looking up furiously teardrops sparkling on her lashes i'll hate and hate and hate a tiny white spot appeared on each of dame damagec's cheeks i do not think you had better say that again in this house she said i have an arrangement to make and will return before evening tell Udas. she went out leaving a lalette who could hardly bear herself nor find anything to do in her mind going over and over the dreadful ground of rodford's treachery and the fact that he was one of the sons of the new day even if he came to her now she would not have him 
that book was closed by his own hand and the boy laudas coming in she allowed him to draw her out of her megrims so that when the widow returned they were almost gay together but it was almost dawn before sleep touched her part two she came awake with a start and the sense that something dreadful had happened it must be late morning the widow was gone from the other side of the bed and laodice's cot was empty and neatly made up there was all at once the whirl at the back of her mind resolved itself into a pattern there were two things in it a picture of a strange room where men talked before a fire while a sea beat on a rocky shore and running through it as though the picture were transparent an appeal so naked and desperate that it brought her to her feet at once mind speaking to mind without words to say that the holder of her blue star was lying bewitched and near death there was no wine it was horribly hard to trace out the pattern of the counter witchery in water even with the help of some dust from the corner and the effort of the projection left her so weak and shaken that when it was done she collapsed across the bed and the shift that had served her as a nightdress and did not even hear dame damagec come in so you have done it said her voice and lalette thought that she had never in her life heard anything so cold lalette raised her head the older woman was looking at the patterns which still moved faintly not at her at all i ask your pardon she said it was an emergency i learned nothing you can say will change the fact that you have brought witchery into my house lalette struggled to her feet well i will go yes said the mask maker i think you must go you have brought on me and my son even worse dangers than you dream of you must go when you spoke of hating yesterday i thought it might come to that but i foolishly let sympathy overrule my judgment in the room above them madame kaja struck a chord on her music and after one false beginning launched into the bride's aria from the disinherited lalette looked at the floor and there were tears in her eyes the widow spoke again yet you were sent to me for help and help you i will if you will take it i think there's only one chance in the world for you and that is to go to manchuray and place yourself under the dominion of the prophet but i have no money to get there no money at all and what could i do there said lalette now angry at herself for having jeopardized herself and the widow too in some manner for the sake of false rodford and willing in her contrition to follow this leading but not seeing how it could be done love forever finds a way to draw to itself those who need it there is a fund for the transportation of those who would go thither and under the ordinance of the prophet there have been established the houses called the couvertines of the mianase where there is shelter and gainful employment for such girls as yourself who need them i do not believe in this religion and i am a witch few believe in the beginning but only turn to our doctrine for relief from some condition of the world it is this witchcraft you must escape lalette heaved a sigh her head ached now and what was the use of this struggle to be free and one's own the strings tightened 
one was drawn back to puppethood. Very well, if you will tell me what to do. Part 3 The conventicle was held at the back of a warehouse. People sat on bales of wood or leaned against them. Guards against the provost had been set at the door. One, who was addressed as initiate, pronounced a discourse of which Lalette hardly understood a word it was so abstract. She could hardly keep her eyes open. The descent into doze and the jerk back were agonizing. A desiccated woman who breathed through her nose was seated on the next bale. At the end of the discourse, she took Lalette's hands in both her own, with a gesture astonishing, until one observed that all the people in the gathering were similarly greeting neighbors. To Lalette's surprise, most of them seemed to be well-to-do people with an expression of almost dogged cheerfulness, but there seemed about them something lacking, as though they had bought this good cheer with the sacrifice of some quality. The thin woman was still talking when a man with an engraved smile touched Lalette's arm and said that the initiate would like to see her. The man's face was calm, as though carved in stone. He asked her whether she was married. Has she read the first book of the prophet? drank fortified alcohols, practiced the art. He looked at her as though his glance would wore straight through when she answered the last honestly that she had done so, but would practice it no more. Then he pronounced a discourse as incomprehensible as that he had given to the company, ending by saying she must be reborn into purest love. At the close of this, he told her that he had looked into her heart and believed her honest but that she must carefully study the prophet's first book. He gave her a letter for the cargo overseer of a vessel even then at the wharf. The book, he said, would be furnished to her aboard by the third mate of the vessel. Dame Domagec had been her guarantee. Love would be her protector. She was kissed on the forehead, and they all went out into the spring twilight with drizzles of rain. At the wharf, Someone was trying to lead a protesting horse into the ship, among stampings and confused shouts. Lalette huddled in the shadow, as close as she could get to the widow Domagéic, and regarded the masts running up into the gray, with their climbing triangles of rope tracery. A wide plank led through a gap in the bulwarks before them, and now the horse was disposed of. The ship's people were engaged in some bargle at one end of the vessel. No one paid any attention to the two women who tripped to the deck and stood uncertain. At last, a man detached himself from the group with a cheerful farewell and came along the deck toward them, cap on head and munching a piece of bread. He would have passed with a brief stare in the assembling gloom, but the widow halted him with outstretched hand and asked where was the overseer of cargo. He halted with mouth open and cheek puffed out with food by the lazarette, and before either could put another question, disappeared round a wooden structure that rose from the planking. A few spurts of rain fell. Lalette shivered more snugly into her cloak, wondering whether which might not be written on her forehead to make all shun her, save those whom others shunned as Amorosians and Zigraniers. Now the chatter broke up and three or four men together came toward the head of the plank porters mainly with their iron hooks in their belts. The exception had broad but stooped shoulders, a close gray mat of beard, and an unlighted lantern in his hand. To him, 
Demdomagaic addressed herself, inquiring where the lazarette might be. He waved a hand. After the trimast, leftward, then glanced at Lalette, stepped close, and peered at her so directly that she shrank away. For Serbrog, mother, he said, and turned to the older woman. Looky here, mother. I hadn't seen you before long at Zegnon dock, eh? You come to see me when you finished with Serbrog, and maybe we do business, eh? At Caseldos. The porters laughed, and one of them bubbled a derisive sound through his lips. Lalette was already repenting her undertaking. A voice behind a door told them to enter. It belonged to a tall man with white hair, whose black fuzzy eyebrows leaped up a long face when he saw that his visitors were women. He did not rise, but cast a half-regretful glance at the sheet of computations on a leaf let down from the wall before him. The letter he at first held away as though it were an affliction of proclamation. When he grasped its purport, and had seen the signature, he rose, all courtesy. Aye, hands must wash face, he said. I trust you left Sir Kenred well. Will you be having a little wine? Dame Domagaic excused herself, since she must return to her child. But as she embraced Lalette farewell, the girl felt thrust into her hand a little cloth pouch with coins in it, and was suddenly at the edge of weeping. When she turned, Sir Brog had set out a pair of pewter cups and was drawing the cork from a bottle of wine. He bowed her to the single chair, himself taking the edge of the built-in bed, which was so hedged about by cabinets that he must bend. He said, So you are seeking a sea voyage, Demoiselle Eisensteg? That was the name the letter had given her. Are you one of the Eisenstegs from Vyer Elden? I hear that there have been troubles in that region. Was he trying to draw her into indiscretion, and how much did he really know of her origin and purpose? She said that she was not of the Vyer Elden branch, and awaited. He asked her politely whether she had had a joyous festival, and were a good sailor. When she said that she had not been at sea before, his face took on some concern, and he regretted that the captain's wife, who usually sailed with them, would not do so this voyage. There were no other women aboard. He would provide her with a bell for summoning someone when needed. Not that you'll be molested, demoiselle, but I will say the third mate is as strange as a dog with two heads. With this, Sir Brog finished his wine and rose to light her to a duplicate of his own tiny cabin. She decided she had been mistaken about the question. He was only expressing interest in the friend of a friend. It was nice not to have to be afraid. An hour or so later, as she sat curled up on the bed, but not yet disrobed, came a demonstration of how well the Amorosians cared for their own. A knock on the door turned into a porter with a neatly strapped small trunk, painted with her assumed name. It held an assortment of body linens, shoes, and a dress in her size, new and of good quality. Part 4 She was roused by feet beating in rhythm and the sound of distant shouts. A big round spot of light swung slowly from side to side across the door. Last night had shown her a jug and a basin beneath the let-down leaf that formed a writing table, but the water was so cold it gave her goose pimples. The new dress would need taking in at the shoulder, so after trying it, she returned to the old before stepping toward the deck along a passage that held three more doors like her own. 
Two men in yokes were pushing and relaxing on opposite sides of a pivoted bar to steer the ship, she supposed, under the orders of an officer in a green cap. One of the workers was the curl-bearded man who had accosted Dame Damagéic the evening before. He relaxed one hand to touch his forelock and had the grace to look sheepish. The officer hardly looked at her. He was watching the mast that rose on every side and the small boats about, where they were well out into the bread of floss, moving steadily downstream, though the sails hung so flat it seemed they could contain no air at all. Lalette stepped back to the steersman to watch the slow pageant of river moving by and heard a step. Serbrog. He touched his cap and invited her to breakfast, down a flight of steep stairs and along another passage to an apartment at the rear of the ship. A skylight threw dappled gleams across a table laid five, with food already on it. Another man was standing by. Serbrog presented the second mate, and as he did so, a big officer with a firm chin and bags under his eyes came in with an air of great hurry and sat down without waiting for the rest. This was the captain, Sir Malvedo. He bounced half an inch from his seat when his name was mentioned and fell to eating while the rest were taking their places. Lalette thought his courtesy somewhat strange to one who wore a badge of good condition and it was stranger still when a youngish officer entered to be greeted by the captain with, You are tardy. You know the role of the ship. Take your meal with the crew. The young officer went out sourly, but not before Lalette recognized him as the one who had directed her toward the lazarette. The meal went on in silence. When the captain rose, so did the others, and Sir Brog touched Lalette's arm to take her to the deck again. The spring air was fine. The stream bank all trickled out in tender green. Lalette looked and felt with a thrill of delight that all was really now spring for her. She was free from the old life and everything to win. But Sir Brog was speaking. Uh, I am sorry to dream, she said. Why, dreams do be what we grow by. I would be saying that you had brought luck and fair weather on our leave-taking for Albert Tegville, the one sent from his breakfast. He, the cargo overseer, laughed. Our third mate is an admirable young man, with only one flaw, that he has discovered how admirable he is, and does not stint his own admiration. The third mate would give her the book, said Lalette, watching a tall unpainted barn without a window that walked slowly past along the shore. Yet your captain seemed very harsh with him for so light a fault. Oh, that is only the rule of the sea. On a ship, one learns early that in this world there is no such thing as following one's own desire. It is all a pyramid of orders. You are grim. No, I only see things as they are. Now he began to make remarks which she must have answered, for he smiled and continued, but now her mind had leaped far away and she was wondering whether she would see Rodford ever again, or recover her blue star. Bound out to sea and away, it was his fault, who had given her unfaithfulness and desertion in exchange for the offered kindness and the abandonment of her mother. And now she wondered why she had embarked on the counter-witchery without even questioning whether she should. She felt a tear behind her eye, and hoped he had come to know what resources of fidelity and goodwill he had lost in her. No, not again. 
I'll never let another have the making of my joy. A whistle was blown. Men moved along the deck of the ship, and Tegville came toward them with his cap insouciantly on one side to be presented. He had the same look of inner peace as the amorosians of the conventicle, but mingled it with an air of dash and recklessness. End of chapter 13 Recording by Angelique G. Campbell August 2018